Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. And I'm Mason Adams. Today, we'll hear the story of one of the world's best fiddlers from St. Albans, West Virginia, Clark Kessinger. And how he inspired his nephew, Robin Kessinger, to play the guitar. And in a small town in West Virginia, East African immigrant communities are connecting back to their home traditions through coffee ceremonies. My mom learned it from, from my grandmother, and my grandmother learned it from her mom hundreds, years, hundreds, and hundreds of years ago. And at a virtual dinner gathering, Appalachians with different political views sit down together over Zoom to eat food and talk about issues they don't agree on. I'm grateful that I get to talk respectfully with people of differing points of view and life experiences. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. And I'm Caitlin Tan. So we're recording this episode a day before Thanksgiving. And I know it won't hit your radio until December, but I just want to say that I'm feeling really thankful. Thankful to be spending my day with you, our listeners, and also Mason. Yeah, agreed, Caitlin. It's also a milestone because just over a year ago, Caitlin and I became the host of Inside Appalachia. And I have to say, I am so grateful for that opportunity and grateful really just to live in this beautiful region we call Appalachia. Today, we're starting off with a story about two of my favorite things, families and fiddle music. You can learn how to play old time music from a songbook. You can learn it from a YouTube tutorial. But I think the best way to learn is the original way, knee to knee with a more experienced musician. If you're a budding guitar player, you won't find a more experienced musician than Robin Kessinger. He's a national award-winning flat picker, and yet still spends his days teaching kids and adults their first chords. But that's no surprise. One of Robin's main musical mentors was a music legend in his own right. Inside Appalachia Folkways reporter Zach Harold has the story. If you only know one thing about the Newport Folk Festival, It's probably this. In 1965, folk wonder boy Bob Dylan took the stage with an all-electric band, and he changed the course of rock music forever, enraging some traditionalists in the process. Pete Seeger was apparently so disturbed by the noise that night that he threatened to cut the power with a hatchet. But I want to talk about a performance from the following year. At the 1966 festival, It was electric in a different way. No hatchets involved. The performance occurred during the festival's fiddle contest, which had legendary songwriter Jimmy Driftwood serving as the MC. Now the last uh, contestant is Clark Kessinger from St. Albans, West Virginia. Up to the mic steps a man in a sports coat and slacks. He's got a Colonel Sanders string tie around his neck. There's a fedora on his head, and a fiddle under his chin. I guess, Clark, you'll be about 71 your next birthday. I think so, yeah. 71 is next birthday. What are you going to play? Well, we got little Sally Ann Johnson. Sally Ann Johnson. Oh, that's nice. Clark dances behind the microphone, live as a man a quarter of his age. The surviving footage is grainy, but you can see this wicked smile on his face. He's smiling because this kind of music just makes you happy. But he's also smiling because he knows he might just be the best fiddle player on earth. And because just a few years before, he thought his days as a professional musician were over 
forever. Clark was born in 1896, and he started playing fiddle from a young age. His dad used to take him around to all the local honky-tonks, where he could earn more in tips in one night than his dad earned all week. Clark joined the Navy during World War I, and after he got out, he started entering these local fiddle contests. Those are competitions where different fiddlers get on stage and see who can play the fastest or with the most feel or with the most precision. And Clark would take home top prize every single time. And then came the record deals. By the end of the 1920s, Clark was making best-selling records with his guitar-playing nephew, Luke. The duo was billed as the Kessinger Brothers, and their recording of Wednesday Night Waltz, that's what you're hearing right now, sold a million copies for Brunswick Records, making him one of the first country artists to achieve that kind of success. But then came the Great Depression, which put an end to the Kessinger Brothers' recording career. Luke died a few years later. He was a hard drinker and had cirrhosis of the liver. Clark got married a few times and raised a bunch of kids. He still played fiddle for local dances, but paid the bills working as a house painter. Until, that is, the folk revival of the 1960s. A new generation of fans discovered those old Kessinger Brothers recordings. An interest was so high that Clark was able to go back out on the road. In 1964, at the age of 68, he took on first place at the renowned Galax Fiddler Convention in Galax, Virginia. Two years later, he was at Newport. And two years after that, he played on stage at the Grand Ole Opry. And in between all those high-profile gigs, he was appearing at folk festivals all over the country. But this second chance at a music career ended almost as quickly as the first one. In 1971, Clark was at the mic at yet another competition when he suffered a severe stroke. He collapsed right there on stage, and though he survived, he could no longer play the fiddle. Yet despite this tragic setback, Clark was about to usher in the next chapter of the Kessinger family's musical legacy. I got to play with him one time. Not long before his stroke, Clark had some visitors to his St. Albans apartment. It was his nephew, Bob Kessinger, and Bob brought along his guitar-playing 15-year-old son, Robin. Bob was an accomplished mandolinist and had shown Robin his first chords on a guitar. That's how I started playing. He needed a guitar player, so, so I started playing guitar with him. Robin took to the instrument and started picking up songs anywhere he could, even from his Saturday morning cartoons. These really old cartoons, you hear a lot of fiddle tunes on there. Or the buzzards flying. It's Arkansas Traveler. Of course, they've... Hey, Heathcliff, what do you want to do today? I don't know. They're flying and having a conversation, flying real slow. It's a fast fiddle tune. He also learned songs from his dad's recordings of this renowned old fiddle player. Perhaps you've heard of him. Dad played uh, Clark Kessinger albums, and uh, he had reel-to-reel tapes. Uh, the music, I was indoctrinated that way. So I was familiar with a lot of the tunes from the time I could remember. So when Clark starts sawing off these traditional tunes like Billy in the Low Ground and Dun Gone, Robin's right there with him, joining in on guitar. I backed him up. You know, I played the chords on there. He gave me a big compliment. He said, Bob, he sounds like Luke. But I, I knew who Luke was. Luke, remember, was Clark's nephew, the guitar player for the Kessinger Brothers. Robin's dad helped take care of Clark after his stroke, so Robin got to spend even more time with him. And though he couldn't play anymore, he still managed to pass down some of his musical knowledge to his great-nephew. He listened to all kinds of music. Uh, he used to listen. That's one of the things I learned from him was to listen to all kinds of music. And if you can use it and what you already know, you can make it better that way. Robin took what he learned from Clark and began winning some contests of his own. He 
picked up titles in Kentucky, Ohio, Georgia, and West Virginia. Just like Clark, he took home first prize at Galax, though on guitar, not fiddle. And in 1985, he won the National Flat Picking Championship in Winfield, Kansas. He's finished in the top five of that competition 10 different times, more than any competitor in history. But for all his trophies, medals, and ribbons he's won through the years, there's one that means more to Robin than any of the others. It's distinct from all the other awards on his shelf because this one kind of looks like an Oscar. Sammy, or it's a Sammy, Sammy Award. Robin received this award in 2001 at the annual Pinch Reunion in Pinch, West Virginia. Sammy is short for Samaritan, as in Good Samaritan. They give the award to people who've made the world a better place. Uh, they give that as like a lifetime of achievement for uh, sharing my music and teaching. See, not only is Robin one of the most decorated musicians in American folk music, he's also dedicated the last four decades of his life to helping budding musicians. Musicians like Bob Gilmore. You know, when you listen to Robin, I mean, he's a you know fantastic musician. And, and I told him, I'm, I'm not going to be the next you know, Robin Kessinger, I'm going to try to be the best Bob Gilmore that I can be. Gilmore's son, Michael, took lessons from Robin for a while. He lost interest when sports and other things came along. But years down the line, Gilmore ran into Robin at a music festival. And I just went up to him just to say hello again. And and I asked him if he uh, was still giving lessons. And, and he said, yeah. He said, my son's name was, was Michael. He said, I'll, I'll take Michael back whenever. I said, well, Michael's not interested. I was talking about me. He began meeting with Robin every week at the Fret and Fiddle Guitar Shop in St. Albans, where Robin keeps a small upstairs studio. That was 10 years ago. Their relationship is so old now, they act less like teacher and student and more like two old buddies. And their time together looks more like a living room jam session than it does a proper music lesson. In fact, Robin schedules Bob as his last session of the day so they can just take as long as they want. So this, this, the girl I left behind, it has words. I don't know the words. But it has nothing to do with the girl I left behind. <laughs> I can dare, guarantee you that. It's, it's going to sound like da-da-da, A minor, da-da-da, back to G, ba-ba-ba, D, ba-da-dum, A minor, probably shown Bob more tune, more family tunes and and I just keep digging up stuff that I haven't played for years. He's he's for, he forces my hand now. Well, and you know, when he's showing me stuff, I mean there there always seems to be a story behind these tunes. He might tell you where you know, where the song came from, what it's about, what was going on at the time, that sort of thing. So it's you know a little bit more than just the music too that that you get with this too. The music lives on in the Kessinger family too. Robin taught his son to play guitar, and he's picked up some contest wins of his own. His name is Luke. For the Inside Appalachia Folkways Corps. I'm Zach Harold in St. Albans, West Virginia. Moorfield, West Virginia is home to about 3,300 people. About one in ten are immigrants. That includes a small community from Eritrea and Ethiopia. Many of them work at the chicken processing plant in town, Pilgrim's Pride. The hours there are long and don't leave much time for socializing. But still, members of that East African community continue to practice a tradition that they've brought from home. The coffee ceremony. Folkways reporter Clara Hazlett brings us this story with help from former West Virginia State folklorist Emily Hilliard. In a small apartment in Moorfield, a woman sits on a short stool. 
roasting green coffee beans on a single burner electric stove. She wears a floral dress and a wooden cross around her neck. Um, my name is Trahas Hilo. I come from Eritrea. I'm living in Moorfield, West Virginia. It's a Sunday, Trihas's day off, and she's hosting a coffee ceremony for a room full of people. She sits apart from the guests at a low table used to prepare the coffee. On the floor beneath her is a green mat, decorated with strips of plastic that look like grass. It just makes it look like special and like respectful, you know? Trihas is still learning English, so her teenage son helps with translation. It makes it look like as if you were like welcoming the guests like in a very welcoming way. Three paper plates are lined up on the mat, each filled with a different colorful snack. This one is candy. This one is for African... Incense and candles perfume the air, along with the smell of roasting coffee beans. Women typically perform the ceremony. It can take up to two hours and involves multiple steps, from roasting the green beans to serving fresh coffee to each guest. You blend the coffee. Uh, after you blend it and you put water in that little jar thing, that here, Jabana, it's called Jabana. That's and Azib Makonan, another East African immigrant, explaining the ritual. And, and some people love put put ginger in it like she did, and uh, some people don't like ginger. Coffee ceremonies so aren't just for special occasions. Uh, Among family and friends, it's a common pastime to make coffee, listen to music, and just enjoy each other's company. You cannot just make coffee by, like, by yourself like this. You call people. That's how it's fun. Like, you communicate, you talk. Azib tells me the tradition is passed down by family matriarchs. Because my mom learned it from, from my grandmother, and my grandmother learned it from her mom hundreds, years, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Trihas's 14-year-old daughter started to learn how to make coffee a couple years ago, even though she's lived most of her life in the U.S. I just watched my mom do it, and I just learned from it and just do it myself. Now, every evening, she makes coffee for her parents before they work the night shift. I mean, yeah, it's our culture. Like, that's what we do, so I just want to learn it and see how we do it. Before coming here, Trihas and her family lived in a rural part of Eritrea, farming vegetables. About 10 years ago, they decided to leave their home and immigrate to the United States. Here's Trihas's son. We wanted to have a better life, better freedom, and my dad was the first one to come here. Trihas stayed behind with their children until her husband got settled. Their migration process was long and difficult. But after five years of separation, the family was reunited in the U.S. Now they're all in Moorfield. It's a good and free, and it's also like free violence. It's all safe here. Trihas and her husband both work at the Pilgrim plant. Her job is to cut and debone chickens. She says it's hard work, and even harder because most people around her speak English. She's told me this. Whenever you go to work, you struggle with English a lot. Even out of work, out of your house, you go somewhere, you struggle. Trihas hopes that learning English will make her life easier. So after each night shift, she comes home, showers, and goes directly to a 9 a.m. English class. So for example, the first one, this is how we would put together the sentence. He has a headache. That's how you're going to put together the sentence. Trihas says it's hard to make friends with native English speakers, but the classes offer a chance to build community with other immigrants. So my mom, like literally everybody that goes in that class is her friend right now. They've even done coffee ceremonies together as a class. Yeah, there's already sugar in it. Huh? Yeah. yeah. Already sugar. Already sugar. Oh. Once the beans are roasted yeah. and the coffee has been brewed, Trihas moves around the room with her coffee pot, serving each guest. She pours the coffee from a pie into little espresso-like cups. The sugar. See the sugar? You're going to stir it like this. The coffee ceremony also plays an important part in maintaining social ties within their East African community in Moorfield, where Azib says there aren't many outlets for leisure activities. Basically just work and just come home, spend out your time with your family, and doing the same thing every week. Work and the same thing. For Trihas, who comes from a small village, rural life hasn't been such a big adjustment. 
But Azib is from the capital city of Ethiopia, and she lived in Atlanta, Georgia, before coming to Moorfield. Maybe you go Walmart. What can you go? Maybe you go on somewhere in Ponderosa or somewhere here, you know. When she gets the chance, she goes over the mountain to larger cities in Virginia, like Winchester and Harrisonburg, where she can find ingredients from East Africa, like green coffee beans. She says the coffee ceremony helps alleviate some of the boredom. Like get together like this, make coffee. I love that. You can just put it right here. How do you say thank you? I'm In Ethiopia, I'm a saganello. In my country, yaranele. Thank you. The coffee is strong and sweet. It tastes of cardamom, cinnamon, and ginger, which Trihas ground and stirred together with the beans. Azib says when they do the coffee ceremony, We feel like we are back home. Do you think you are back there still? Your mind go back there. The living room is full of guests and conversation, fueled by coffee and the warmth of hospitality. <laughs> On Monday, most of them will be back at work, cleaning and deboning chickens. But for this hour or two, they're back home, sharing coffee with their community and their new friends in the United States. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Clara Hazlett. Emily Hilliard helped produce that story. There's a new generation of young farmers. But they not only face long-standing farmer problems, like prices and weather, but they're also having trouble affording land to actually farm on. You can work as hard as anybody, you can have wonderful customers, and all it takes is one landowner saying, I don't, I don't see you here anymore, and your whole business comes crashing down. What could help them out? That's after a break. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. And I'm Caitlin Tan. We'll be right back. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. For generations here in Appalachia, fall has been a time of harvest. On farms, there's a mad rush to get all the last crops in before that first hard freeze. It's a hard time of year and an already hard job. For a lot of folks, farming is a constant uphill battle to get out of debt. And yet, people still want to farm, including a growing number of young people. But one of the biggest barriers to young farmers is accessing affordable land. WESA's On Lee Herring reports. Stephanie and Taylor Rickert have always wanted to own a farm. They grew up in farming families, but most of the land was sold off when they were still kids. So several years ago, in their early 20s, the couple started to search for their own place. Couldn't find anything. We actually went out and made note cards that said, please call us back. We're young and we're looking for a farm with our name and number. And we actually went around and knocked on people's doors. No one wanted to sell or they wanted too much money. Other properties were snapped up before the Rickerts could get to them. But then, a relative near McConnell's mill told them her neighbors were moving to a nursing home and about to put their 20-acre farm up for auction. The Rickards weren't sure they could compete. Developers would probably bid too, and auctions involved big down payments. But then the couple got a call from the family that owned the farm. And they're like, are you guys really interested in buying the place? And we're like, yeah, we really want it. That's, we're doing as much as we can. And then they go, well, we'll just sell it to you outright then, which changed the whole ball game. The Rickards bought the farm last year at a slightly reduced price. Now they raise chickens, cows, and pigs and sell enough meat and eggs to keep their business going. At the end of the day, it only took one special family, like the people that we bought this from, to say, you know what, put all the money aside. Our parents want to see this stay a farm. Is that worth it to them? And, and it was. 
They both still work full-time off the farm. That's common with a small operation like theirs, especially for first-generation farmers who don't already have land. It's exceedingly difficult to build anything of significance under a traditional farm lease. Margaret Schloss started her own farm in 2009. She was 23 at the time and could only afford to rent. After years of searching, she ended up in handshake deals for three properties in the North Hills. The handshake lease is so common in ag. When you start asking people to put things in writing, they start to want to just back away. She knew it was a risk not to have a written lease, but over the first five years, it seemed like she'd made a good bet. She had hundreds of customers, including local restaurants, and employed as many as a dozen people. But at year six, her biggest landlord pulled the plug, and Schloss had to shut down the business. That just goes to show you, you can work as hard as anybody, you can have wonderful customers, and all it takes is one landowner saying, I don't, I don't see you here anymore, and your whole business comes crashing down. Karen Gardner of the National Young Farmers Coalition says this isn't a unique situation. Land access is the number one challenge young farmers are facing. It's also the number one reason that young farmers are leaving agriculture. Gardner says first-time farmers need more support to make things work. That could take the form of tax credits for beginning farmers or programs to preserve working farms. The Western Pennsylvania Conservancy has historically focused on protecting state parks and natural areas, but about five years ago, the Pittsburgh-based group began to develop what it calls the Farmland Access Initiative. Sean Fenlin oversees the program. And so what we decided is what we try is buying the properties ourselves and then leasing them out to farmers at really arguably subsidized rates and really help them just give them a chance to really develop their businesses. The Conservancy now owns three farm properties outside Pittsburgh. Fenlon says the small farms in the program generally don't provide a livable income. The high cost of land is likely to remain an obstacle for new farmers. Still, Margaret Schloss says she'd give farming another try if the right opportunity came along. It's your whole life, right? So you, as a farmer, like you need it to meet your needs. You need it to you need to have the right amount of acreage. You need to have the right um, it needs to be the right farm for you. It needs to give you the things you need to be successful. But she says getting land remains so tenuous for first-gen farmers that she's not holding out hope. On Lee Herring in Pittsburgh. midst of the holiday season, almost two years into the pandemic, and some of us are getting to see our families for the first time in a while. But family get-togethers, even during non-pandemic times, can also be stressful, especially if you have family members who have political views that don't quite line up with yours. Our colleagues at the Us and Them podcast started a tradition last Thanksgiving, a virtual dinner party of people with different political views. They talk about issues that are on their minds. And maybe, hopefully, they find some common ground between servings of turkey and pumpkin pie. Let's listen to an excerpt from their dinner party this year. Here's us and them host, Trey Kay. We had hoped to have a Thanksgiving-style dinner in person. But as the news of the COVID Delta variant worsened, our dinner party crew agreed it was safest to meet like we did the first time on Zoom. Jay, where, where is your computer? Can you get a little closer? Is it is there any way you can pull it a little closer? Okay. Uh, uh, there he is. There he is. I greeted my guests okay. as they appeared in their video squares. Okay. Hey, hey, Karen. Felicia's, Felicia's showing up here. Hey. There's Felicia. So one, two. This is Ann. Hey, Ann, where are Okay, I see I'm you. I'm here somewhere. Are you, are you going to turn your camera on? Well, you know what? It's on. I don't know what's going on. This is my fourth Zoom today, and it has worked perfectly. So I don't know what it's doing now. And Joe, are you with us? Uh, you, you're muted. Yeah, I'm just... 
I'm just eating a lot of food to get rid of my anxiety. So, <laughs> and I'll put on my video in a bit. Okay. All right. I don't want you to have anxiety, Joe Solomon. Okay. So, I'm just try double checking here. I think we're missing. Okay. So, Felicia, we need. There are three political conservatives and three progressive West Virginians. We had some changes to the group because a few people couldn't make it. Each of us has a holiday meal to share, virtually, of course. Mine is a mostly traditional Thanksgiving dinner. As you can see, she's got, it's actually chicken, not turkey tonight, with mashed potatoes, and there's like this beautiful medley of vegetables. I show off the meal my mom made for me. There's like carrots and Brussels sprouts and summer squash and all kinds of stuff like that. And there's a little bit of stuffing. And then she has pumpkin pie over here, and she made this nice little candle that you can kind of see in the background. And I even have like a little glass of wine. Jay has already showed me what he has, which actually looks great. But Jay, could you let everybody know what you got going on over there? Well, I'm having ham with a, a, a mustard dressing on top of it. I'm having a, a, a corn pudding, sweet potatoes salad, and then some uh, marinated um, uh, whole kernel corn and carrots and a piece of uh, pumpkin pie also uh, and a glass of milk. That's Jay Gould. He's a retiree from rural West Virginia. Next, you'll hear from business owner Felicia Bush. Uh, I have uh, turkey, some corn, stuffing, some mashed potatoes and gravy, and pumpkin pie. Ooh. That does sound good. Okay, we okay. We got three three pumpkin pies so far. Okay, Karen. <laughs> so okay, so I'm still at work, and it's been a really really busy week. Karen Cross is a longtime West Virginian who lives in Washington D.C. Um, this is my cup with um black beans in it. Um, <laughs> I found a can of black beans, so that <laughs> and um dessert. Boom. <laughs> Wait, what is that? What is that? It's it's a Nature's Bakery fig bar, blueberry. It's supposed to be healthy, but it's 200 calories, so I don't know how. It's a lot of sugar. <laughs> yeah, it's not as exciting as everybody else's. <laughs> Sorry. Joe Solomon, are you going to let us see what you're working on there? Oh, my goodness. Five uh, order dominoes, you know? Dinner party regular Joe Solomon is from Charleston, West Virginia. And you can get so much carbs to really put yourself at ease before one of these calls with Trey K. Um, <laughs> I, got, I got the bread bowl and a full medium pizza with uh, the honey barbecue sauce. And they, they threw in the free chocolate lava cakes, which is like a new promotion. And I'm pretty pumped. That's also a carb. <laughs> All right. And there's Terry. Hi, Terry. I have something special. Before we start, I need to show you guys something. Okay. Just something small. All right. Show us right now. Oh, wow. Oh, gorgeous. Fantastic. Can you see it? Oh, look at that. That's a thank you for the beautiful flowers that everyone sent. Oh, thank you. Oh. Since our last get-together, Terry Triplett DeLotter has lost her husband of 26 years. He had a lot of health concerns and was in and out of the hospital over the past year. When the dinner party regulars found out about Terry's loss, they sent her a bouquet of flowers. So she has a cake with a special message. It says, thank you. I'm getting ready to cut some in a minute. I want Terry to figure out a way to cut that cake and send it out through Zoom. Yeah, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> I bet I'll gain weight watching her eat it. <laughs> One of the voices you just heard is our newest dinner party member, Anne Cavalier. She's mayor of Smithers, a small West Virginia town. Welcome to Smithers, if only virtually, everyone. If you haven't been here, get here as soon as you can. Come by and say hi to the mayor because I'd love to meet you in person. Uh, my friends know that I enjoy a little wine and cheese and crackers. I always put ice in it. And my cheese and crackers are always Cheetos. So <laughs> I'm having wine and cheese and crackers. 
<laughs> we were all really looking forward to getting together in person this time, but everyone's health was more important. To be honest, I kind of thought this would be over by now. Just kind of had hoped we would be past this, past COVID, and especially once the vaccines came out. Felicia Bush is an African-American business owner and calls herself liberal on social issues. It's just disappointing to be where we are and uh, losing people every day. I have staff members who are losing family members. And I also am in a position where my board has said that everyone must be vaxxed because we're a Medicaid provider. Felicia operates mental health clinics across West Virginia. Her business falls under the federal vaccine requirement. When we taped this episode, she was bracing to fire employees who chose not to get vaccinated. She later said all of her employees got vaccinated and nobody lost their job. Still, the specter of job loss due to vaccine mandates looms large across the country. The federal government, military, healthcare industry, and private businesses are weighing such requirements or have already implemented mandates. Felicia is one of many business owners weathering the pandemic with tough choices to make. It's that juxtaposition about the greater good and then what feels important to us. And I think that's what everybody struggles with when they're trying to make these decisions. You know, what feels good and safe with us and against uh, everybody else. My concern is edging into disappointment, moving towards anger. Mayor Ann Cavalier is a Democrat. Her husband is severely immune compromised. A year ago, I had these same concerns about his health. The wrong sneeze, the wrong um, associations, and I could lose my friend of 58 years. So I have those same concerns this year. We know what the issues are health-wise. We know what we can do to protect ourselves and one another. But too many have chosen not to look at this as a health issue, but to look at it as a broader um, social issue, maybe even a political issue. And I'm watching while I'm losing friends, I'm losing relatives. We lost two people in our church this past week who absolutely refused to be vaccinated and I'm very concerned, and it takes me from concern to disappointment to that, just that edge right now of something more deeply felt, um, because I see in the paper people in the hospital are unvaccinated, and 98% of the people in ICU are unvaccinated, and I wonder at what point are we going to care enough, as we did with polio, as we did with smallpox, as we did with chickenpox, as we did with diphtheria, as we did with other viruses, when are we going to care enough about the health and take it out of this broader social arena and put it back into healthcare where it belongs? I know it's frustrating, and I think that everybody points to you know, the unvaccinated. I, I don't know that. I mean, right now we know that the, the vaccinated can still get it. It's not as detrimental, but they can still get it. Terry Triplett DeLauder identifies as a conservative. I do believe firmly that it is a choice. I don't know that, uh, I don't think that the government should be able to mandate your own health. The Democrats certainly go for it for abortion. They want abortions, you know, and that's freedom of choice to them. So I don't know why. They push back so much on the vaccine. Now, that's just political take, and that's just my take on it. Well, I'm I'm unvaccinated, um, have no intentions of getting it, and I'm not trying to make a political statement whatsoever. I just choose not to. Here's conservative Jay Gould, a mostly retired engineer and business owner. I consider myself to be in reasonably good health. If you're in reasonably good health, your chances of having a bad effect from it is almost nil. Jay, why don't you want to get vaccinated? My oldest daughter is a nurse. My youngest daughter has a degree in biology with uh, emphasis in microbiology. 
and she studied a lot of this. And this is not your conventional vaccine. Uh, they've developed an RNA that will go in and um, reconstruct the uh, cell function. Uh, and uh, for, for some reason, they're really pushing this harder than anything I've ever seen. And that just makes me leery. We've been listening to part of a recent episode of Us and Them. This dinner party started out pretty warm, but as we'll hear, the conversation began to take a turn once they began talking about the 2020 election. Again, here's us and them host, Trey Kay. Dinner party regular Jay Gould, a conservative, has made it clear he did not trust the outcome of the 2020 election. I asked Jay what he thinks about current efforts to reform the election process. I most definitely hope they make the changes to where I have confidence in the election. These questions uh, that come up in this last one, uh, multitudes of uh, questions, I just never had any confidence in it. I watched what went on in Detroit when they kept people out. I listened to the interviews in, uh, where was it, Arizona and uh, Michigan. People testifying of uh, all the stuff they'd seen, and, uh, and 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 even in Georgia, I watched uh, the videos in Georgia. That can't go on, and and expect me to have confidence in the election. I agree with you 100. percent Not only that is the new laws that um, the Biden administration's got on the table. They put the fear of everybody of voters' rights. Terry Triplett DeLauder is referring to an election reform proposal Democratic leaders are pushing in Congress. So far, Senate Republicans are blocking it. The proposal is designed to expand voting access, security, and integrity. It sets national standards that states would follow to administer elections. It also makes it easier to vote by mail. You know, it, I, don't, I wouldn't have nearly a problem if they did the one thing that most Republican states are doing is requiring voter ID. What is so bad about that? You have to return some integrity to the voting process itself first. This aspect of election reform is where Terry Triplett DeLauder and African-American business owner Felicia Bush dig in. So at what point, though, I'm curious, is what point you all really thought the, the voting process, because there were questions about, you know, the previous election, and I didn't hear all of this from Republicans. It wasn't until they lost that they had to question no. voting integrity. Because the reality is the laws that are being passed are being passed in order to marginalize people like me. Okay. Like I don't see. I don't see how. I don't know. See, that's what I don't understand. You don't marginalize anybody because you're not. Anybody you're, should have, not to have a voter ID. Part of a marginalized community. Well, why right. would anyone? Why would anyone object to having a a, a voter ID? See, that, for, that's, years, that's fine. for years in my history, not in your history, but in my history, and our access to the polls have been blocked. It had been blocked not just by objections, not by peaceful protest, but by beating us to a, a bloody pulp. Okay, why? why That's what happened to my about the voter ID that I do not understand why there's anything wrong with that. What plan do you and people who think like you have in order to make sure that every American has equal access to the right to vote by getting access to what you think they need to vote, which is voter ID? What's your plan? They can can absolutely. They do mail ins. uh, We can. They can go door to door and, and and have them fill out the paperwork. Get copies of their IDs. Think of, I'm going to just think of all the other reasons, by gosh, they get them for, for if they want a driver's license, if they want to go on a plane, if they want to buy liquor, if they want to buy, I mean, people have access to get ID. So, I mean, they have to have ID for a lot less things than voter. So you have to have the ability, you have to have the, you have to have the ability to get there. You have to have the proper documentation to get there, to get, to get it. You, you have can to mail, you can it. do mail in. You have to pay for it. Terry, you have to pay for it. I know this is something that's hard for pay you to for it. I do mail in. Because I you haven't had that. There's a cost to getting your ID. Oh, I mean, a cost to get your ID. Well, then yes. what do they do about all the other things in life? So if they don't have, the, so you're telling me that it's so hard that they don't have to have ID for anything else in life? Yes. Social worker Joe Solomon jumps in here momentarily with a passionate response. A few words are a little muffled. 
It is very, very hard for the most vulnerable in our communities, for people of color, for poor people, for people pushed to the edges to have ID. In fact, in fact, for women who experience domestic violence, one of the, while I was running the domestic violence program, the largest thing, the first thing I had to do with people was help them get identification. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It makes that easy. I had, I mean, but, but, but to do that, Terry, I had to get special access to, to identification to be able to do that safely. I had to get, have grant funds to pay for that identification because it costs money. Okay. Has anyone ever brought that up? I mean, I have not heard about the, the actual cost of, 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 the, of somebody going stepping in and paying for the cost of someone to, to um, obtain ID for, for yeah. voters. Only well, for I would I say. would challenge you to to reach out to your local uh, Republican National Party and see if they would be willing to foot that cost so that we can have a, a, an election with integrity. I would support that 100%. Terry, you're saying that that you feel you don't understand why we don't have um, why a, why is, why having a voter ID is such a big deal right and Felicia and I think Joe maybe you would agree with voter ID but your assertion is that in many ways this is maybe a hoop for people that they would have to jump through and you would say to Terry don't make it so that everybody has to actually go to the state house go to the DMV to to get an ID just so they can have an ID to vote. Yes, I'm saying that's a burden on those people. Access is a burden. Lack of access is a burden. Well, Any barrier that you can put up between somebody and their right to exercise their freedom as an American, then if we really care about it, if we really care about it, and if what we don't really care about is holding on to power, then we should do all we can to overcome those barriers. Despite the momentary heat over election reform proposals, there is some common ground at our virtual table. It feels like the more we're willing to listen to someone whose life experience is different than ours, the more we learn something new. And that helps us see each other and connect on more levels. As we finished up our non-Thanksgiving Thanksgiving dinner, I ask everyone to share what they feel grateful for this season. I'm Felicia Bush. Um, I feel grateful for this, this science. I feel grateful that innovations keep happening, that people, for whatever reasons, um, you know, I have a lot of issues with big pharma, but, you know, if you're, you're going to get a, a vaccine that's going to cure people, I'm all for that. So I'm grateful for them, for minds that uh, think completely opposite of mine and can accomplish something like that. I'm grateful for all of the innovative ways we have found to stay connected during this excruciating time in our history. And um, I'm thankful for the people I'm surrounded with, obviously for my family, but uh, uh, I have a great crew of people that are experiencing the same trauma as everyone else, and yet they uh, help other people deal with their traumas every single day. So I'm really grateful for that. And I'm grateful for this group. I'm grateful that I get to talk respectfully with people of differing um, points of view and life experiences. Well, I'm Jay Gould. I can't wait until we all get together in person. I'm looking forward to that. Yes, me too. Hopefully, as long as my back holds out, I don't have to lay down. It's a- <laughs> halfway through. Um. That's Terry Triplett DeLauder. At this point during the evening, she's laying on her bed. I had to. My back, I have to either get up, sit, walk down, lay down. For about every 20 minutes, I have to do something. I have to move. Yeah, I had to lay back down for a minute. But I'm thankful for this group, too. It has definitely opened my eyes to different issues. Um, As far as, like, the voter ID, I mean, I would never have thought that that was such a big point in getting an ID. And I really appreciate this group. It's open minds to quite a few things. We've been listening to a recent episode of Us and Them, a show also produced here at West Virginia Public Broadcasting. To hear the rest, go to wvpublic.org or wherever you get your podcasts.
After listening to that dinner party excerpt, I was left thinking about quite a few things, Mason. I mean, yes, we're still really polarized as a country, but I think that excerpt shows us that we can find common ground. And, you know, it's around the holidays, it can be hard and we're going to feel different about things. But maybe if we just sit down and try to listen to each other, we can find that common ground. Yeah, one thing that struck me was just that uh, occasionally people in the conversation would kind of get stuck, but when they actually slowed down, they'd start to listen and, and understand a different perspective. And I, I think that's true for all of us. I know listening to this, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't rebut. So it was good for me to slow down and just listen here as well. That's, that's how we learn things that are new. Yeah, well, hopefully we all get a chance to kind of slow down and think about things around the holidays this year. Until next time, thanks for listening as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Blue Dot Sessions, Jake Sheps, West Swing, and Dinosaur Burps. Roxy Todd is our producer. Our executive producer is Andrea Billups. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. Visit WVPublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to sign up for the Inside Appalachia newsletter. There, you can also subscribe or download all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.